And we are live for another episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Damon Lemby. He's the CEO of an organization called Learn It and the author, author of this book, The Learn It All Leader Mindset Traits and Tools. Damon, it is a great pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Richard, I'm glad to be here today and excited and great to see you. Great to meet you. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm super pumped. I was telling you before I came on, we've just hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. So I know uh, I mean, that's an amazing, like we talked about before the show, that's, a, that's an amazing feat. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, it feels great. So, uh, and, and well, who could be more fitting uh, than you to have on the show at 10,000 uh, subscribers? Because we're all about learning uh, and, and growing. So, uh, yeah, I can't wait to get into your insights. Um, all of your experience in leading Learn It and uh, all of the experience passed on from multiple generations of, of leaders in your family. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting to that. So for people who don't know you, I wonder if you could give, you know, your backstory as far back as you want to go. You know, this is about being human, really getting a sense of, of who you are and, you know, the background for your story. Sure. So, Richard, I was born in San Francisco, California, the Bay Area. I'm the oldest of four kids, uh, great parents, Walter and Linda Lemby. Um, and I, I lost my dad in 2010, but a, a great family growing up. And when, growing up, a lot of my life revolved around sports, you know, local sports. And I was really fortunate. I had great friends with great families. And when it was baseball season, we played baseball. And it was football, it was about the 49ers. And so sports was really a key figure, uh, you know, a key thing in my life. And when I got into high school, I played multiple sports. But I said to myself, if I was going to get a college scholarship or move on, I would have to pick one. And the one that really stood out that I was the strongest at was baseball. And so I put a lot of emphasis on baseball. And I was lucky. And I got drafted by the Atlanta Braves in the uh, 13th round of, uh, out of high school, kind of dating myself. In, uh, 1990. And that was really my first tough decision I had to make. And my parents are great. They, they kind of said, hey, look, this is your choice. You got yourself here with our support and we'll support you if you want to go the minor league route. And I was, you know, I was a young uh, September birthday, so I was like 17. Or if you want to go to college. And I thought about it and I had a full ride to Pepperdine University. And I wasn't, I wasn't really sure I was ready to go into the minor leagues. And I really believed in the vision that our coach, Andy Lopez, had about <clears throat> even a small school like Pepperdine winning the World Series. And yeah. so uh, I decided I turned down the Braves offer. I went to Pepperdine University as a third baseman coming in as a preseason All-American. And, you know, I was, uh, I was a little intimidated. Well, sorry, sorry for the people who are not familiar with baseball. Yeah. What's, a third, what's a third baseman? So a third baseman for, for uh, non-baseball uh, fans is a person, there's a baseball diamond and there's a, a first base, second base, and third base. Um, and so the ball's hit to you. You got to throw it across the diamond to the first baseman. So right. uh, to play third base, you got you to have good reflexes and a strong arm. But right. good question. Right. And um, so, yeah, so I, I, I had the scholarship and I, and I got there. And then I went from being, you know, what I thought was like the best in the county or one of the best in the state to, you know, everybody's at the same level. 
And you kind of wonder, like, do I even, am I even good enough to be here? When I was 17, I got hurt and I ended up transferring out of Pepperdine. And I ended up at a college called, uh, named uh, Arizona State University. I continued playing baseball. Um, my career highlight was I hit a home run in the College World Series, which uh, my wife's very tired of me hearing, hearing that story. She, I, she likes to joke with me. And I was you know, ready to continue down the path of becoming a Major League Baseball player. And when the season ended, the draft came, and the draft came and went. I didn't get drafted. And here I was, about 21, 22 years old. I figured my entire life I was going to be a professional baseball player. That's what my identity was. And like a mm -hmm. lot of athletes, when that dream ended, I was kind of, I was pretty depressed and was really unsure, you know, what my next move was going to be now that my sports career was over. Because I put all my eggs, so to speak, in one basket. Now, I was really fortunate. I am really fortunate to come from a family who had multiple businesses. My, um, like I talk about in the book, my, my dad and my grandfather were big entrepreneurs. And at one point uh, back then, you know, we had one of the largest real estate companies in California as oh, well wow. as um, a mortgage company, uh, a Chinese restaurant. We had all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, I was, I was not sure that my skills translated or not into, into the workforce. And so at the time, in June of 94, my, my dad was also starting a computer training company called Learn It. And he did so, and we can get into the, the longer story later if you want, because like a lot of entrepreneurs, he took a class somewhere and he realized that there's got to be a better way to do this, right? He thought this right. was long, boring, and not engaging. And he figured we, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's where he came up with the idea of Learn It. And I just happened to be, you know, getting out of school and I took the job there at the ground level as a receptionist. Um, so I wanted to really show that um, I, w I wanted to learn I and I wanted to show everybody else that I belonged there. You know, that wasn't just like, hey, my dad put me in a position high up. I wanted to work my way up. I wanted to show that I belong. I wanted to do great and contribute. So fast forward seven years and I. From there, I taught classes, I did sales and contributed, helped the IT team. And when they were looking, when the CEO wasn't working out, this was uh, probably early 2000s, late 99, maybe, um, they were looking for a new CEO. And I kind of threw my hat in the ring. Well, I did throw my hat in the ring. And I said, hey, I've taught classes. I've done this. I've done that. You know, I'd like an opportunity. And they gave me that opportunity. And I've been here as a CEO of Learn It for about, you know, 20 years now, 22 years. Mm. Um, we've, we've helped upskill close to 1.8 million individuals in everything from Microsoft Excel to becoming a, a better leader. And I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be in learning and education my entire career. Um, right. But, uh, here I am and I've loved, I've really loved, loved it, had a lot of success and a lot of fail failures, you know, that, Hopefully, I've I've learned from and uh, and so yeah. So that in a nutshell, I would say is my my story. Right, right. Um, and I can imagine. Well, I can imagine you'll tell me, but it was quite difficult, right? Going from like daddy's boy to leading the company. I mean, how were those initial you know days and weeks when you when you were first given that 
that role? How did people react? You know, what did you have to do to get get through that first phase? Um, I had to work hard. Well, the by the time I got to be CEO, I've already proven to be a really hard worker. You know, right. I said to myself, you know, going in. It, first of all, it, it took me a, about a year to get over. I, I don't know, maybe the depression of not playing baseball anymore and mm. going out to the ballpark and seeing a lot of my friends in the big leagues. You know, I was really happy for them, but right. um, it was a tough, you know, tough nut to swallow. But um, what I did from the very beginning is I just outworked everybody. I, I just worked harder and um, tried to be as humble as possible and wanted to help because the last thing that I wanted, which a lot of people thought, you know, going into it was this, you know, silver spoon in his mouth. You know, this is his daddy, like you said, daddy's, yeah. daddy's company, you know, give this guy everything. But by the time I got to the C CEO level, like I said, seven years later, I think I did a pretty good job of um, proving myself, but mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't slow down from there. I, I just, I've always just kind of wanted to lead by example and, and have a, a strong work ethic. Right. So you didn't really have sounds like much of a negative reaction because you'd already built a ton of trust through working so hard and yeah right i mean early on you know in the first couple of years i, I had to build a lot of trust you know because you know right. people were skeptical like is this guy going to show up is is he you know is he taking this serious you know does he even want to be here but I, I think i think i proved that i wanted to be there relatively early on right right and what what was some of the as facets of, of your leadership that you started to bring to bear on, on the role when you assumed that the CEO role? So I would, I would say not having any really formal education that, uh, you know, directly pointed into leadership in, in or previous roles is that I modeled my leadership style really after, you know, one of the unique experience I had was I played for three hall of fame college baseball coaches. Andy Lopez at Pepperdine, John Nochi was a stopover at a junior college, and then at Arizona State, a legendary gentleman by the name of uh, Jim Brock. And I kind of watched and learned from them uh, how they led the teams. And I, I modeled that along with what I learned from my, my dad and my grandfather. And a lot of that really had to do with, uh, you know, what's important as a leader, which I believe are things like, you know, being humble. Uh, always staying curious, not um, not having to be the, the smartest person in the room. You know, you want to surround yourself with, I've, I think I've always done a good job of surrounding myself with great talent, you know, people who are smarter than me or people who uh, can provide diverse opinions that we can bounce ideas around. And then, you know, lead with integrity and, and have accountability. And that's a lot of that I learned from playing baseball. But I also learned what not to do because I, I played for some baseball coaches or other sports coaches that doesn't matter who they are. But, you know, one thing not to do is I, I that say, for instance, something great happens and you want to celebrate wins and, you know, the wins, you should give the wins to your, you know, your employees, to your teammates, you know, celebrate their wins. And then instead of taking all the credit yourself, you know, and, and sometimes these coaches would take all the credit themselves, you know, like we're on a winning streak. It was about the moves they made. And then when things weren't doing good and we were in a slump, then all of a sudden it was our fault. And my opinion and, and what I've learned from that is give your team the credit, put them in a position to succeed and uh, celebrate them. But if things don't go right, you, you get in front of there and say, hey, look, this is on me. 
we're going to figure this out together. Right, right. Yeah, and accountability at the top there, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you mentioned humility there and having a level of humility. And you say in the book, uh, humility requires confidence is something I took a note of. Yeah, what, what do you mean by that? So I think if you look at humility and then let's say humility and vulnerability, right? Because I think it's important to be, uh, there's a lot made and a lot said about being vulnerable as a leader. And I think it's kind of a paradox because you, you know, you want to be strong. You need to, you, to, to be able to be vulnerable as a leader, you want to be strong, but you want to have self-confidence, but you also want to be able to admit when you made a mistake or maybe you don't have an answer to something. You know, the old way of leadership, and um, I'm curious to see what you think, but the old way of leadership is like never admit mistakes, only admit strength. And and what what I look at it as, it's okay to admit mistakes, but not, you know, over apologize and and feel sorry for yourself. You know, it's like, hey, this is what happened. And now we're going to rectify it. And this is what we learned from it and move forward. I mean, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts when it comes I, to that? I, I totally agree with that. And it's part of the prevalent culture because I do a lot of coaching with senior leaders. And sometimes, sometimes I'll coach them and say, hey, maybe this is an opportunity for you, for you to show a bit of vulnerability, accept, you know, accept a mistake here. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of resistance to that because their whole careers often, they've been, they've been drilled in not, not showing weakness right. and not showing vulnerability. Uh, and yet, as you say, it, it shows confidence. It engenders trust. Uh, yeah, there's there's a huge benefit going a bit of, and I think that I think that employees see through that when when somebody's you know, won't make a mistake and they and they feel like they you know like I talk about learn it all like that somebody's a know it all they got it all figured out I think that yeah. that deteriorates trust because I think I think people kind of see through that. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and and trust is a is a is a big theme in the book. And you, what, something I hadn't come across before, which I loved was this idea of, of trust tax. Yeah, can, you, can you talk about that? And there's a story that I love about you, you had a couple of employees that played. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, the tr- what I you know, term the trust tax is, you know, when you go into a relationship, whether it's a personal relationship, whether it's a professional relationship, you, know, you have a couple of options. You can go in skeptical and cynical thinking, okay, you know, everybody's out to get me. Uh, or you can choose, and I, and I really learned this from my dad, you know, is you could, you could choose to give everybody, give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, uh, believe, believe in people that they're, that they've got the best intentions. Now it, you don't have to, you, you gotta be, you can't be naive coming into a relationship, but, um, you know, I, I think that if you go into a relationship thinking, Hey, give people the benefit of the doubt and, and want to help them and give them the space to be successful. And, um, you know, every once in a while, you're going to get burned, you know, and, and that's just what's going to happen. And whether you get burnt by someone who is either uh, doing it on purpose or maybe they're unaware of what they're doing, that's just going to happen. And, and that's what I term the trust tax, because, you know, let's say you have 20 relationships and 18 go right or 19 go right. And then it's just a tax you have to pay. And mm. uh, I think. Richard, I just think it's it's too difficult to go through life like with just so much negative energy uh, pented up and always assuming assuming the worst. And um, and that's why I, I choose to go into relationships, you know, with my eyes open, but to believe that um, that everybody's got the that people have the best intentions. Yeah, and and that 
and that makes sense as a concept to me. And often that'll be the pushback when it comes to, hey, take a you know take a high trust approach. Is yeah, but what if this happens? Well, okay, that's going to happen, right? And and it's part of the tax you pay, but the benefits of paying your trust tax you know, outweigh the tax. Got yeah, that. and the story you're talking about in my book is I, I had a couple of uh, gentlemen who worked for me for about twenty plus years, and you know I, I felt like uh, really gave you know gave them an opportunity to grow and learn at learn it and, and really took care of them, you know, and I mean, wasn't perfect, but really, you know, took care of them. And then, and then unbeknownst to me, they went, they left during the COVID and they spun off and created like a copycat of learn it. You know, I'm all for people leaving and, you know, starting their own thing, even, in, you know, but have your own point of view, you know, have your own type of business instead of just basically trying to copy exactly what we we do. And, you know, a lot of individuals, uh, you know, at LearnIt or, or friends of mine are like, man, doesn't that really upset you? Doesn't that really get to you? Sure, I don't like it, but I'm not going to allow that to interfere with, you know, my future relationships. And um, it, it's just what happens. And if we have to compete against uh, them in a uh, competitive opportunity for a deal, we're going we're gonna to beat them, you know? So... Yeah. You know, there's different ways to look at things, but I, I think that it's uh, paying the trust tax is, is worth it for a lot of reasons. Right. And so that's obviously something you apply in your own personal relationships. You know, you, 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 you trust people uh, mm-hmm. as a default. How do, you, how do you ensure that happens like across the culture at Learn It? Because it's one thing for you to be great at trusting, but how do you create a, a trustful culture as a leader? That's a, good, that's a really good question. You know, I mean, I do it because, you know, quite honestly, I just like to help people. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I like to be able to help, help people and believe in people. Um, how do you create it across the culture? I think it comes back to what your core values and your purpose are of the organization mm. and getting the individuals on your team to realize that it, you got to look at it as a team instead of a bunch of individuals, right? And, and if you all have a, a, a goal, you know, the, the same goal and the same vision and you're, you're moving in the same direction, then you're less likely to have individuals who are politicking or going out on their own, you know, um, and they're willing, you know, to work together. Um, now, with all that being said, you know, you're going to have every once in a while, you know, individuals who want to, you know, put themselves forward and, you know, do whatever. And sometimes it can create a very toxic culture. And if you do, if that does create a toxic culture, you have a couple decisions, especially uh, choices, especially if it's a uh, high producing employee, you know, a star employee, you know, do you let that, do you let that behavior go on and let it deteriorate? I, I, maybe on the short term, Richard, maybe it's good, you know, your sales are up or, or whatever. Um, but long term, I think it really hurts your culture. So you can let it continue or you can sit that individual down and, and ask them to you know, get in line. And then if they don't, then you have to make a decision, which should probably be to not no longer have them in your organization. Right, right. And when you say get in line, that for you, that's someone who could be high producing, but they're just not behaving consistent with the values. Exactly, right. You know, um, yeah, and I'm not saying get in line, like I want everybody doing the same thing all the time. I, you know, I want people to come in with their own personality and their, their creativity and everything. I'm just saying get in line with, be, be aligned with our values and our, and our, our goals of the organization. 
and and be supportive of your teammates instead of you know trying to put yourself first all the time. Right, right, right. That makes sense. You talk about something. You know, the, the book is obviously called "The Learn It All Leader," and um, you, you you talk about this concept of learning agility, which I which I liked. Can you can you say say more about that? So, you know, in my opinion, learning agility is the ability to continue to learn. You know, I mean, it's and in my so I think it's a, I consider it a skill. And I, I kind of consider it, well, I don't kind of, I believe it's like one of the most important skills that uh, is out there, you know, for all your listeners, it, you know, over the next, you know, 10, 20 years, you look at the shelf life of skills and they typically used to be about five years. Now they're less than a year. So what's most important is the ability to continue to keep learning, right? That uh, you keep learning and learning, as you know, it's not easy. You know, learning is not easy. You don't just, you know, take a take a class or have a couple of coaching sessions or walk a doc, watch a documentary, and all of a sudden you're a fantastic coach. It's something that you need to, to put effort in and continue to um, dive deeper and be consistent with. And um, that's really what I mean by learning agility: is the ability to continue to to grow and evolve and learn as time goes on. Right. And and what do you think the keys? Are for somebody to develop that learning agility uh, capability. I well, I think the keys are one is uh, to be consistent. You know, to be consistent in your in your approach to learning. Meaning that maybe even if it's like even if it's like carving out, I don't know, thirty minutes every morning, reading or or listening to a podcast um, to, to you know pick up something new. I also think another key to learning is having strong listening skills uh, and being engaged. And, you know, you can, you can also, you can learn from everybody you come in contact with. You know, everybody you come in contact with is more of an expert at something than you are, you know? And so yeah. if you can get, you know, and again, I said listening, but also curiosity, if you can stay curious and be engaged and, you know, even if things aren't directly related to what your job is or your passion is, you know, it's great to, to meet people with different types of experiences or maybe alternative opinions to, to important issues that you have. And um, to me, those are really the, the keys to continuing to have learning agility is consistency, you know, strong listening skills, being curious and, you know, learning from, from whoever you come in contact with. And of course, learning from your mistakes. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that really resonates, especially and especially listening, because listening is a skill. It's a lifelong skill. You, like you, you never, but you could only ever get better. Right. There's always headroom to improve your listening skills. And, and it's somebody anyone at any time could start getting better at. Um, yeah. and, and, and it's key to so many. Uh, so it's key to our ability to be effective in so many fields. Uh, but of course, learning is one of those. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say too. It's, it's kind of funny, and I'm, I'm sure you experience this. You know, you talk about listening skills, and so many people think that they're great listeners, but they're really not. You know, I mean, there, there's, and I think part of the, uh, what's important to be a great listener, and I'm working on it. I mean, there's, there, there's time. It's, it's hard, you know, but you know, I've been, I've been working on it, and there's really, you want to stay away from things like 
formulating an opinion while somebody else is talking, like you're already coming up with your, your response. Um, I mean, I mean, that's a big one. And just staying focused, right? You know, not, you know, getting distracted by your phone or, or whatever. So it's a, it's a skill that we should all keep in mind and continue to, you can always, like you said, you can always get better at uh, listening. Yeah. 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 And that, that makes, that makes total sense. Um, the, the, the book is fit into, you know, being and doing. Um, and uh, if we were to just pick out like a, a couple of the, the practices mm -hmm. um, that is going to help someone become you know, a learning or leader, somebody who is committed to learning and developing their learning agility as a leader, what, where would you start to point people in terms of practice? Another good question. I would say um, one thing that you can do as uh, to become more of a learn it all leader is, is to be good at uh, receiving feedback. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, people don't want to give you feedback because maybe they feel like you're going to get defensive, you know, um, especially if it's somebody who reports to you, right. And they you think, well, maybe I, I you know, I don't want to, you know, get this, this person upset with me. And uh, so what I've done, and I talk about this a little bit in my book is say, for instance, um, I want to get better at being a podcast guest. I'll say something like, hey, uh, Nick, can you watch this uh, podcast and let me know what you think? But I wouldn't leave it at that. I would say, you know, I think it went okay, but there are certain things I could have done differently. Like I could have answered this question differently, or maybe I talked too fast. So I, I, I'm inviting critiques, you know? So um, that's one little easy trick you can implement, not trick, but, you know, tool that you can implement to become, um, you know, more of a learn-it-all leader. And the other, I would say the other one that's been pretty popular um, in my book is, you know, overcoming an imposter syndrome, you know, right. is a big one where I think we all, we all deal with uh, self-doubt. And sometimes we want to come across as a know-it-all, like we have it all figured out. Um, or we just feel like we don't belong. You know, I was uh, uh, speaking to this um, client, this woman yesterday, who's getting promoted into a very senior role at a pretty large uh, nonprofit. And she was like, I can't believe that I'm moving, that, was, uh, that I'm being given this opportunity, you know, I, you know, and um, I, I maybe, I don't even know if I'm, if I belong, if I should be getting this opportunity. And I said, Hey, take a step back. They're putting you into this role because of your past experience, your past success, and you need to believe in yourself in order, in order to do it. And, um, you know, I think that that's a perfect example of imposter syndrome. And I learned how to deal with it, uh, like I talk about in my book, in baseball, you know, and, and I kind of carried that on. And it's really like, I look at it as like a three-step process. You know, first, you, before you even get started, you like identify what am I worried about? And in this person's case, it's moving into, you know, moving into a role that maybe she's not sure she's qualified for. But then what I would say is number, step number one is work hard. You know, I'm not saying you need to work 10 to 14 hours a day, but you need to consistently put in hard work. And then number two is focus or deliberate practice. You know, it's very easy, right, to get to procrastinate or, or you know, focus on something that's not really that important. But if, if you have something really important that you're concerned about, put in the time and deliberate practice on it. And then, and then and step number three is learn and kind of let go and have fun with things, 
right? Because it's like, let's say that you had a, a big uh, sales presentation and, uh, or an all hands meeting that you're presenting at for the first time as a leader. You know, if you've worked hard and you've put in the, in the preparation and then you're going into this presentation, you know, take a step back. Don't be so hard on yourself and say, look, you know, number one, I'm human, you know, so you, you, things may not go right, may not be perfect, but I've put in the hard work. I've, I've, um, I've really prepared. Now it's game time for this presentation. And just kind of, when I say let go, I mean, just stop worrying about what you, what, you're, what you practice and just let it happen. You know, just do the best you can do. Uh, and then um, if it goes great, fantastic. If it doesn't, learn from what you can do differently, but don't beat yourself up over it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that inner dialogue that we all have, it's learning, learning to let go of that is such yeah. an important Your inner critic, in life, right? Yeah, your inner critic. Mm. Just, you know, giving yourself, I guess you could say, give yourself some grace to, to make mistakes, you know? Yeah. And, don't take, and don't take yourself so seriously. You know, I mean, for the most part, Richard, you know, people have their own lives and their own concerns. So if you mess something up, most likely, sure, maybe they'll I don't know, laugh or whatever, but then let's move on to their own. They have other things to be concerned about. You know, you're not, you're, you're not going to be their number one issue all the time. And if you know that you put your best effort into it and you prepared and you worked hard, hey, that's, that's all you can do. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes total sense. And the other thing I liked in your, in your book is, you talked about uh, thinking through like the worst thing that happened, but purposeful awfulizing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I look at, <laughs> so I, I, what I mean by pur purposeful awfulizing, and, and I think that, you know, there's other terms for it, but say for instance, uh, you have a, you have a big decision coming up and you, what you, what I, what I do is I look, let's say one year out and I try to figure out what are all the different scenarios that could outcomes that could happen okay and, and you try to look for whatever blind spots you could have and then you, you figure out like okay the all the absolute worst scenario if you can live with that you know if there's a personal decision or, or a professional decision if you can live with that and you feel like you're making the right decision boom do it you know like jeff bezos says if you have 70 percent of the facts lined up as a leader especially um just move forward and make the decision now you know, for instance, if you're looking to acquire a company and you realize that, uh, you know, worst case scenario, it could put you out of business or, you know, you could get overextended, then maybe that, that's not the right thing to do. Go back to the drawing board and, and bring in your team and come out with alternative solutions. So purposeful awfulizing is really looking at uh, the worst case scenario, not to be negative, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we want to be too rosy positive and only want to look at the positives. That could happen, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying to be negative. I'm just saying let let's see what could worst case can possibly be, and um, see if that's something that we can we can deal with. Yeah, yeah, and and not to sweat too much on the decision making, right? And I've I've heard yeah. before about Jeff Bezos. You know, for, for most decisions, if there isn't some immediate catastrophe, there's no point sweating. You know, putting you've got to make that judgment of investment in making the decision. Versus consequence of getting it wrong, you know. One of the worst, you know, make, making no decision is is a decision, you know. And yeah. especially if you're a leader, you know, you, they want they want your team, your people, they want you to be decisive. 
you know, they want you to be confident, you know, and um, it, it, there's sometimes people get, you know, stuck in like, a, what's it called? A decision paralysis, you know, and it's just like, it's, I think that uh, you got to be, you, you, you have to look at the options, you know, and I think it's also important to have multiple options, not just binary, this, this one or this one, you know, create multiple options. And then when you get to a point you want to be at, then make that decision and, and go for it. You got to, I think as a leader, you, you, you need to be bold. You know, you need to, you know, I read, I was reading this book. I think it's called the uh, new book that came out about the uh, mindset of CEOs. A couple of McKenzie individuals read it. It's awesome. And uh, what it talked about what, what set uh, the top CEOs apart. And there was like five categories. One was the ability to make bold decisions. Right. Yeah. Boldness. Yeah. And I highlighted uh, something in your book, which I liked it. Vision differentiates leaders from operators. Operators work towards an organization's goal and are vital to its smooth functioning. They don't set the, the agenda, right? That idea of you, you've got to be visioning and, and what you're adding to this is, and it's got to be bold, right? Like if you want to lead. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that in, in, there's a difference between managers and leaders. And, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with uh, being a manager uh, at all. But typically, I look at a leader as, you know, somebody who has a vision or is, you know, what makes uh, moonshot, has moonshot dreams, right? Um, and then the, uh, the manager is responsible for helping carry that, you know, operating it and helping carry out that vision. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's so and I think you're right. But I think anybody at any level has an opportunity to be that leader, right? For, for their domain of control, right? And like being in that distinction of, am I operating right now, which might be absolutely the right thing to do? Or is there an opportunity for me to lead? In which case, what is my vision? And maybe what's my bold vision for this, you know, this process or this, this, this small corner of my organization, it seems to me. Well, first of all, I think you bring up a great point that I was, I was going to bring up a couple of minutes ago is my definition of a leader isn't somebody, you don't have to lead a team of 800 people or 50 people. It all, you know, you could, you could be a, you could be a parent, you can be a, a, a student and you can be an individual contributor. To me, it's all about self-leadership. You know, it's about holding yourself accountable, being disciplined. And like you said, having a you know, having a vision, whether that's a vision for your family or whether that's a vision for your career growth, you know? So I think that we all have a choice. Do we want to be leaders or do we want to be followers? And, you know, you can be a follower in some domains and a leader in others, but uh, I like to clarify that. So I appreciate bringing it up because I think that, uh, that we're all, we all have the ability um, and to choose to be a leader. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I think very often people in organizations will default. And when you say, hey, what's your leadership vision for this organization? That, oh, well, I'm not the CEO. Right. You know, why, why would I need to worry about that? Well, I'm like, you can still have a vision. It, mm -hmm. it just, it just, it's just going to be appropriate to wherever you're at. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think some of that depends on the culture that you have in, in your right. organization, you know, and I talk about that a little bit, you know, Tom Peters is, you know, has the MBWA, you know, mm -hmm. managed by walking around. Uh, and so for instance, that learning, I mean, obviously, you know, we're a small organization. We have about 70 or 80 em employees, you know, um, all over the place, but um, you know, I've always tried to create an environment where 
everybody has an opportunity to uh, come with ideas. You know, I, I, you know, I really try to get people engaged through ideas at all levels of the organization, especially at the front lines, right? The, the ones who are working with the customers, you know, a lot of times, you know, the senior leaders or the CEOs are, you know, they're, they're, they shouldn't be involved in the, in the day-to-day and they're out of it. But if you can sit down again and, and talk to, you know, somebody who's at the front desk or somebody who's a, a accounts receivable person or, or like in, in our case, facilitators and, you know, really, you know, ask good questions and get curious, you know, you can learn a lot from them. And, you know, it's not that you're going to implement every idea they have, but going back to what we talked about earlier, some of the best ideas that have ever come out of Learn It and helped us evolve and be successful has come from people in, in the lower ranks, you know, um, and we've really celebrated those wins for them and, and, and showed gratitude to them. And you know what that does? It just makes them more excited to contribute more and look for yeah. other areas instead of coming in and saying, this is my job. This is my lane. I want to get and what I do doesn't matter. You know, and even in large organizations and teams, individuals can contribute and make a difference. You know, if, if they're if I think if their leaders, you know, listen to them and, and hear, you know, and, and get curious and give them an opportunity to share what they think. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about the book about, well, it comes to, yeah, as I mentioned, you mentioned leadership by walking around, but it's like, pick up the phone. Somebody yeah. call out of the blue. Yeah. 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 These days, I mean. It's I, I leadership to, by teams calls or, or whatever, right? Yeah, I, I, I try to make a habit of and being consistent with, you know, contacting four or five employees at least a week uh, and, mm. and just saying, how's everything going? You know, what's going on with, you know, is there, how's your family doing? Because, you know, what, what takes place at home could, could affect you at work as well, yeah. right? And, you know, I'm not saying you have to be buddy buddies with everybody, but it's, but it's, it's important to know and, and people really appreciate it you know really appreciate to hear from you and that you take the time and that you're authentic when you're doing it you're not like you know texting somebody why somebody's you know telling you about how your kids got covid and and, and your and your wife's driving everybody around you know you know and and so it's um you know being empathetic and and seeing what's going on and i, I think it's important to engage with your employees like that right yeah yeah and on that theme i mean you, you close out the book with this chapter on, on coaching your team um, and we've touched on several aspects, but yeah, what what would you add to what you've already shared um, in terms of being a coach as a leader or a leader as a coach? I think uh, to being a great coach um, for your team, your team members, is to uh, you know, it's to not jump in and do the work for them. You know, it's it's. To again, it goes back to having a clear vision and, and very clear directives on what their what their responsibilities are, uh, and then giving them a, the autonomy to do the work. You know, the, you're there to support them, and you're not going to jump in. I, in my in my book, I talk about it being like the hero. You know, like let's say uh, I've seen this so many times because I work with our customers. We work with a lot of sales leaders. You know, a sales manager will go on a uh, in person call meeting. With a with a new sales rep or a Zoom call, and the the sales reps going through their spiel, their pitch, or whatever their discovery, and then the sales leader just jumps in and takes over, right? Just jumps yeah. in, puts this the the new sales rep in the back, you know, or they you know they sit back and they take over. And sure, maybe they win the deal, but 
you're not you're not investing or helping this individual with their with their growth. They're they're basically probably just shutting down, right? They're just like okay, whatever. So, but I think a great and so don't be a hero. I think a great coach in that situation lets them go through, supports them, and then afterwards talks about hey, you know, as patient and say hey, you know, here's a situation where you know how do you think this went? You know, and coaches them through and makes the uh, helps the individual think through and really make everything as possible a learning opportunity, you know, and um, and just, you know, not giving, understanding that individuals make mistakes and giving them the opportunity to learn from those mistakes. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I love how you, you laid that out. And that, but that, and of course that is very common. Somebody gets oh, yeah. promoted uh, because they are heroes, because they are great contributors. Yeah. And that's what lights them up and that's what they value. And you've got, it's this reflection that's required to say, okay, now what worked for me to be the great contributor isn't going to work for me to be the great leader, the great coach. I need to seek satisfaction in other areas. And it, it's quite a, you know, an investment in sort of reorienting to, to become that coach. It's not something you, you just switch, switch into in general. And let me ask you this. In the, in the customers that you work with, do you, do you see, you know, going from individual contributor to leadership, do you see that as being one of the biggest challenges of? Uh, yeah, one of the big, yeah, definitely one of the biggest challenges for <laughs> individuals and one of the most cited challenges from CEOs about their leadership team is I've got a, you know, I've got a bunch of experts here who were brilliant at the job they were in before I promoted them. Yeah. And now yeah. that, that ability to, to be the cause of something great to happen. Mm -hmm. Rather than you know the direct, um, you know the, the, the creating the space for something great to happen, rather than being the one doing all the work. So, what would be one tip that you give them to, to help these individuals? Well, I think it's, it's starting to manage the dialogue in your head, and and observing what it is that I have as a story about myself in, in relation to my greatness. Because if the story is I'm great because you know, I'm an expert in it, X, or I'm great because I, I, I can get it done when, you know, the shit hits the fan. What, right. Whatever that story is mm -hmm. that, that, that contributes you to your identity and your own sense of your own greatness is what you've got to start looking at and saying, you know, is that the right story? Is that, is that what's going to set me up to be the leader? And nine times out of ten, it's not if people right. are struggling to make that transition. And the story in your head needs to be, you know, something more along the lines of, you know, I'm great at having other people show up or I'm great at creating a space for greatness in others. Right? And, and that's, but once they made that shift, then, then, then it. Yeah. Then I a hundred percent agree. I, I also think that you, you, if you could be proactive with it and you got to really, I mean, one is even ask people if they want to be promoted into a leadership role, mm. you know, I mean, and then, uh, I mean, I have a, I have a good story of an individual, um, individual contributor, um, somebody I mentor, uh, top producing sales rep in the SaaS world, right? You know, younger, younger yeah. gentleman calls me up at the beginning of the year and just says, you know, uh, my uh, CEO, this is a pretty big company. My, my CEO or my uh, VP of sales has, uh, you know, wants to promote me and, and be in sales leadership. And I, and I, you know, the first question I always ask, and I get curious is, you know, what about that interests you? 
you know, and yeah, uh, the right question. And then a couple questions like, you know, have you ever led anything? You know, have you ever led a team and you know intramural team or uh, mentor people? You know, just to kind of see. And this gentleman's responses came back to like, well, you know, I I think it's exciting. You know, it's a it's a promotion. It will look good on my resume and my LinkedIn page. And I you know I have a different title and and you know and then I asked. And how does the comp plan work? Is it is it more towards um, how your team does, your individual? He's like, I don't really know. I haven't looked at that. And he hasn't really put in that much thought about this promotion and anything of what he really wants to do. And knowing him, and he's a great individual, you know, I don't, I just don't, I just, I didn't think it was the right role to move into. And uh, took it anyways. And <laughs> called me like a month ago. And he's like, I just want to go back to sales. You know, this is this management stuff is hard. You know, it's hard. And I just want to leave. I want to I want to leave the office at the uh, or the Zoom or whatever you call it these days. Uh, at the, at, you know, I don't want to talk to people on the weekends about things. I just want to take care of the customer, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's not only important for to be proactive about this, but also as like the VP of sales or the CEO, you know, you want to be checking in with these individuals if they're struggling in this new role because you know my recommendation was hey go talk to your boss you know go talk to your your, your manager and see if you can go back to be an individual contributor he's like i don't know if, if i want to do that and you know i mean the the market's not that great right now for work, new jobs of course but if it was he'd be probably looking somewhere else right because he does, he wants to get out of the leadership role and and doesn't feel comfortable you know you know going to his his manager and saying, I just, I don't want to manage anymore. I want to go back to an individual contributor. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, it makes sense. And it's not the right move for a lot of people. It's not the right fact. A friend of mine was, is also a coach inside a company and she yeah. did some coaching work with a senior manager. There. And as a result of coaching sessions, he, he self-demoted. He was like, no, you're yeah. right. You know, having reflected, this is just not something I'm interested in. But I, I think companies need to be cognizant of this because we tend to create structures where the pay goes up according yep. to how many people you manage. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of, not all companies, right? And I think the companies um, yeah, often benefit from having a, a, an ability to progress in terms of reward that doesn't require you managing more and more people. So you don't end up putting square pegs into round holes just because that person wants to earn more. I think that that, for your listeners, I think that's a very key thing you said. I think that there should be promotions available on technical expertise, not just always on your, you know, like you said, how many more people you manage, right? I mean, it shouldn't be always that career trajectory because, you know, not everybody wants to lead or, or you know, is, is passionate about it, you know, leading a team. So I think that's something to be cognizant about. Yeah. And also, and, and the research, right? you may already be familiar with this, but individual sales performance is negatively correlated with sales management performance. I.e., the better you are as a salesman, the less likely you are to be a good salesman. Because it's, it's, it's a different is a different value set. Yeah. And, and it's a different mindset. And that's yeah, when our coaching, that's something we really look at is um, you know, what it is that you value, because that's going to determine and what it is you believe about yourself. Well, that's going to determine your actions and your impact in any area. Yeah. And if that's misaligned with the role, you're going to be in trouble. If that misaligned with the role, you're going to be in trouble. And I think that what you said is because sometimes as an individual contributor, and then you move into the sales role, and this happens in sports too, by the way, in, in coaching, some of the worst coaches are the, the, the best players, you know? Right. And what they don't get is they're like, 
well, this is, they don't put themselves, they're not empathetic with individuals, you know, their team, because they think this came so easy to me. I don't understand why this person can't do that, you know, or right. why don't they don't, why they're not as excited about this or why they don't, they don't have the aptitude to pick this up like I do. Right. Yeah. And, um, I think that that causes exactly like what you said right there, um, a n- negative correlation for uh, a, a sales department when you go from being a top producer to a, uh, you know, to a leader, um, it can negatively affect the whole team. Right. And the reverse is true. A lot of great coaches were kind of mediocre players, right? I mean, I, I'm much more familiar with the world of soccer, uh, yeah. football as we call it. But uh, yeah, that's often true, right? The best yeah. managers were like so-so players. Yeah. And, and, and like going back to, to baseball, some of the, the, the best managers of all time were like these uh, backup catchers, you know, the, the, which, right. is, uh, which is kind of like a, a quarterback role, you know, where you, you're kind of navigating the whole field. But, you know, they, they can kind of, you know, they can kind of see. And then when they get promoted into, uh, a, we're not promoted, but when they get into coaching, you know, they're, they're better because they're more empathetic. And, they, and like I said, they could see the field and the strategy and how things happen. Um, from a bigger perspective. Yeah, yeah. And which gives us a clue what you were alluding to earlier. Empathy is a key skill here. Listening, yep. empathizing, putting yourself. So if you are looking to make that transition from contributor or expert into leadership, these are very important skills to develop. And, and there's something for you to really reflect on yourself before you do it, right? You know, mm. and, uh, and then if, you're, if you feel like, well, maybe I don't have the patience or I'm not a great listener, but but I'm willing to learn and get better and be you know be a learn it all or whatever. Yeah. Then, then take that leap, you know. But you need to really think about that before before you automatically accept a promotion, you know. And even ask your ask your leaders like, okay, what you know? How are you? Because that's another thing that we see all the time, right? I I just got promoted, you know, into a new position. My VP is too too busy to help educate me you know, onboard me and I'm kind of just stuck there and I don't have the skills, you know? So, you know, a lot of times that's where people come to learn is we help them develop those skills to be able to become successful leaders. Right. Yeah. Great. Um, I think, I think we've, we've covered a lot of the bases again here, but um, building great teams, mm-hmm. clearly being a great coach as a leader is part of that. Is there, is there anything else you'd, you'd throw in in terms of building great teams? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'm a big fan I believe in, when at all possible, hiring for potential over experience. Now, you can't do that in every role, of course, but uh, I think that's been one of our uh, keys to building great teams at LearnIt, and I've seen other companies um, do that as well. Are you familiar with the, I, well, I talked about it in my book, the, the Herb Keller story from Southwest? No, but go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Expand for the list. Yeah. So, I mean, this is literally a story I've I've told hundreds of times throughout my career at Learn It. So, Southwest Airlines, uh, at the beginning stages, you know, they were just about to go bankrupt. You know, and then Herb Keller, the the founder CEO, came in and said, "Well, the only way we're going to be able to compete is to reduce the, uh, be a no frills airline and and be less expensive." Um, than everybody else. So he went to his executive board and said, this is what we're going to do. This is how much we're going to charge per flight. And they're like, well, there's no way we can do this unless our turnaround time, you know, unless we offered more flights in the day, you know, for, the, for each plane. And um, the standard industry turnaround time, I think, was, let's say, 16 minutes. And Herb's like, 
right, we're going to get this down to 12 minutes, you know, and, and everybody in the room is like, there's no way you can do that. That's not possible. Um, you're going to have to go out and you're going to have to hire the best crews from Delta Airlines, Eastern Airlines, you know, whoever, all the, the top individuals, and you're still not going to be able to do it. And Herb's like, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to go out and hire a bunch of individuals who are eager, willing to learn, and, um, and are disciplined. And I'm just going to tell them, you've got to get it done in 12 minutes. They don't know any better, right? They don't know any better. And then the whole thing is, and that's where it came up with, they actually got it down to 10 minutes. And they came up with the, wow. they, can't do, they got it down to 10 minutes. And sometimes it's uh, interesting, you know, people don't know any better and, you know, irrational people maybe who don't know better can sometimes create, you know, great things because they don't have any bounty, you know, they don't have anything that's mm. this, you know, limit on what they can possibly do. So you know, one thing for me is, and I've always thought about that. I always want to hire for potential over experience. Uh, also, I kind of look at it like when I'm interviewing people uh, or our teams interviewing people, you know, we look for people who fit the core values, you know, I mean, fit the values and, we feel like they'd be a good fit, you know, that then, you know, you can ask some questions around, you know, what they think about, you know, learning and, and growing and, and some mistakes they've made in the past and everything. And then um, if they fit from that perspective, you bring them in and then you just kind of play close attention to the role they're in. And if their strengths lie somewhere else, you know, I think it's your responsibility to move them in. That's important to your company. Move them into a role that they'll be successful with, that they're passionate about. And help, and help them focus on, on their, I'm a big believer in focusing on strengths over weaknesses. I mean, sure, you can improve your weaknesses, but I think a low-hanging fruit is to improve the strengths. And, right. uh, you know, and so that's another one. And what that's done for learning over the years is it's allowed us, you know, some people stay for a couple of years. Um, some people stay their whole career. But I feel like we got this really strong network of alumni and so we have a, a, a strong funnel of uh uh referrals all the time you know they'll, they'll call up and they'll say you know somebody will text me and say hey uh this person would be a great fit for learning you know if you're looking for somebody and even current employees you know know when or when not to you know uh, invite people into our organization in our culture so those are i know i kind of covered a lot there but those are kind of the um, hiring for potential, um, setting up a strong referral network that is aligned with your your values of the individuals you're looking for, and then bringing people on and giving them, you know, having high expectations, but giving them the chance to actually do the work and support them and not, you know, get all fired up at them if they make mistakes, you know, give them a chance to be successful. Yeah. And that's interesting that you include that in your hiring is asking for where they've made mistakes and where they've owned it. And like, do they have this learning uh, capability, right? Is that, is that at the heart of, of who they are, right? That's well, isn't like it funny sometimes that you, you know, you interview people and, and, and every, every scenario they tell you about what a terrible manager they have and how this was this person's fault or this was that person's fault. And it kind of, you know, it kind of gets to be a, uh, you know, a theme, right? And so maybe, maybe, maybe it's their fault. You know, maybe they're the ones who are, you know, have a victim mentality instead of, I, I love it interviewing somebody and they're like, hey, well, this didn't go well, but I took ownership for it, you know, and, and, and that's just the way it was. And I learned from it and I moved forward, you know. Mm, 
Yeah, yeah, great. Oh, this is this is this is fantastic, Damon. Is there anything we've not touched on in terms of what it takes to be a learning all leader? Is is there anything you know you'd you'd like to add in terms of what we? Well, I think we've covered quite a bit. I would say uh, going back to the whole, you know, learn it all versus know it all. I, I think in 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 uh, we could all be a little bit of both in some domains where we think we're a know it all versus learn it all. And what I'd recommend, uh, what I recommend to your listeners or to everybody is even just challenge your own opinions. You know, when it comes to things, right? So if you're whether it's professionally and you you got a certain process the way things are working and you're pretty sure you're right but keep an open mind and challenge yourself to think is this really the best way to do it or is there another way for us to evolve you know and, and i think if you do that you're always going to be keeping yourself open to learning and um growing and developing and people will come to you um even if you're just an individual contributor to give you advice or feedback and i think that that mm-hmm. is that's much better than being the person who has all the answers all the time, has it all figured out my way, the highway. So just be open, have fun with it. And, um, you know, don't, don't, um, be too hard on yourself and, um, work hard and, you know, find, find a, uh, career that you, you know, you, you, you love and, you know, work hard. Brilliant. Well, Damon, this has been awesome. Uh, it's been a great honor to have you as our um, first guest after clocking past the 10,000 subscribers, Mark. Uh, it, it's been fantastic. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll obviously put a link to the, to the book, uh, The Learn It All Leader. Uh, and for people, I guess, I guess who want some technology training or some leadership training, they can, they can check out uh, the, the Learn It organization. We'll, we'll put a link to that. Anywhere else you would send them, Dame? Yeah, I would say connect with me on LinkedIn at Damon Lemby. And if you wanted to look at the, the classes we have, uh, you can go to learnit.com. But uh, really? it's an honor to be here. And I just want to you know, congratulate you again for 10,000 subscribers on your YouTube cha- channel. That's, uh, that's quite a feat. Thank you. That's brilliant. Okay. Um, well, I guess uh, we'll say goodbye. And, and thank you once again. Thank, thank you, Damon. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.